Welcome to Open Your Eyes, a podcast about empowering each of us with the perspective and tools to grow and change. Thanks for joining us. I'm excited to spend a few minutes with you today. You know, of all the podcasts that we've shared, this podcast topic today has the potential to make a real difference in your life and mine. So today, wherever you are as you listen to this podcast, I hope the principles you hear can bless your life and help you live better. By the way, if you find these podcasts helpful, you could help by sharing these podcasts with a friend. Word of mouth helps us further our mission. Just share the podcast and say something like, I thought you might enjoy this podcast. Have a great day. And that would help us expand our mission and keep doing a little bit of good. Let's get started. Today, I'd like to talk about how we can find and create lasting wealth. Charles was born on May 3rd, 1882 in Parma, Italy. And as he got older, because his family had fallen on hard times, he took a job as a postal worker. He had a flamboyant personality and followed his richer friends to attend the university. But as his rich friends played, partied, and spent their money, he tried desperately to do the same and ended up without a degree and any money to speak of. So he moved to Boston. He landed in the United States with $2.50 in his pocket. He quickly learned English, took a job as a dishwasher, and worked his way up to waiter before he was fired for theft. Well, after he served prison time, he moved to Montreal and took an assistant manager job at a bank. And because he spoke French, Italian, and English, and because of his personality, he was soon promoted to bank manager. But the bank failed. And without money, he decided to forge a bank check for $423, and again, he got caught and spent three years in prison. After serving a sentence, he decided to make money smuggling immigrants across the border. He went to prison again. There in prison, he met a mobster and Wall Street speculator who tutored Charles in the ways of finance. So after being released, Charles got married without telling his wife of his criminal background, worked as a translator, and set up an office in downtown Boston. One day, he noticed that postal coupons could be bought in Italy, exchanged for U.S. stamps in the U.S., and because of the difference in currency values, he could make money off of the transaction. The only trick was he had to eventually sell the stamps to buyers for cash. Well, Charles set up a stock company to raise money from the public to fund his stamp coupon exchange business. He promised investors 50% return on their money in 45 days. And initially, 18 investors gave him a total of $1,800. He wanted to make sure that they received the promised 50% return, and his stamp coupons were not yielding the returns he had hoped, so he paid the first 18 investors their 50% return from the new money received from the next group of investors. And soon the word was out. You can make a lot of money with Charles's company. And in just a matter of months, he had received $25,000 from investors. He paid the current investors with money from a growing number of new investors. Three months later, he was taking in over $1 million a day. Charles' first investors were working-class people. 
But soon this grew to well-to-do rich individuals and bankers and others. And Charles soon realized his stamp coupons couldn't really be sold. Well, and it didn't matter much because he was collecting more money each week than he was paying out to previous investors. With some of this money, he bought a mansion. He put deposits in various banks across New England. He bought an automobile. He traveled to Italy first class with his wife and mother. He bought a wine company. He donated $100,000 to a children's home. And he lived the life of a multimillionaire. Soon, however, the Post, a newspaper, started to pry into Charles's affairs. They hired an expert to investigate. And the expert found that Charles claimed in his printed materials that there were 160 million postal coupons in circulation. But that was a lie. Charles hardly reported any expenses in selling stamps. And it would have taken huge costs to turn his stamps into cash. But those expenses were non-existent. And the experts found one irregularity in his reports after another. In the meantime, Charles bought a bank. And he used loans from the bank to cover his tracks. He took out loans in his investors' names and used the loans to pay supposed returns to those investors. Soon, bank auditors uncovered his scheme and the whole enterprise came tumbling down. In total, Charles Ponzi had taken and spent over $20 million from investors. Ponzi would spend years in prison and eventually died in poverty in Brazil. Well, following his conviction, the term Ponzi scheme became famous and is used in education, securities law, and many other places. Perhaps the most famous Ponzi scheme of our day was carried out by Wall Street tycoon Bernie Madoff. He duped sophisticated investors and hedge fund managers out of $20 billion before getting caught. To these investors, who had given him $20 billion, over the years, he falsely reported that their investments had grown to a value of $65 billion. But those were just numbers on paper. In his case, as things unraveled, Madoff told his brother and two sons about his fraud, and they turned their father over to the federal authorities. For years, Madoff was able to carry out his Ponzi scheme because he was so trusted. You see, his company was one of the largest traders on the NASDAQ and S&P stock exchanges. And he held several boards of director and advisory positions on Wall Street. Now, I had a neighbor who did the same thing. He used his personality and pretense of success to dupe many of my neighbors into investing with him. In total, he took $20 million from friends before being convicted and sent to prison. So how does this happen? How do so-called investors get themselves caught up in schemes that result in their losing money? And what are the common traits of these schemes? Well, here's what the SEC says. One trait is the promise of a sure thing. You see, when something's too good to be true, it most likely is. And I can't tell you the number of times people have come to me telling me about the latest sure thing, and that sure thing doesn't turn out. Next, these schemes often promise high returns with little risk. And educated investors understand one thing. There is always risk. And these schemes claim overly consistent high returns. You see, almost all investments go up and down. And the list goes on. So, as you begin to create excess cash flow in your household each month, how do you invest it safely and most effectively to create lasting wealth? 
what are the principles to follow for investing and creating wealth? Well, there are thousands of books written on investing in the stock market and real estate, and one expert after another offering their advice. So let's sift, if we can, through a bit of that noise. Let's talk about some basic principles and steps on your way to investing or improving your investing. Now, if you already know these things, pay attention anyway, because you can use this list, these principles, to teach your children. And this list is essential to learning how to create wealth. The first item on our list is this. Decide what real wealth means to you and develop a plan to achieve it. You must decide what wealth means to you because it will direct your actions. For example, if becoming debt-free is atop your list, that is where you'll direct most of your cash flow. You may start investing, but you'll focus on paying off debts. If real wealth means to be financially free in retirement, then you may invest more for retirement and orient your investments accordingly. If wealth means your children are provided for, then you'll take a different route in investing. If you want to give to charity, there's a strategy for that as well. So it's important to define where you're headed. Now for me, real wealth begins with me being strong in character and good in health. Notice, wealth isn't the amount in my bank account. For me, wealth means I want enough residual income in my life to give me time to exercise regularly, to eat well, to give to my community, and live in a way that I can be happy. To me, wealthy also means that my family can spend time together and grow. I want to have the resources to help them when they need it. And I also want the freedom to give back to the world, to work in meaningful causes to help others. All of these things requires resources. As Henry Ward Beecher said, riches are not an end in life, but an instrument in life. And that's true. Resources are instruments to help you reach your goals. Now, I have a good friend who's a former C-suite executive of Walmart. He's very wealthy. He's debt-free. But he still works alongside others giving back to his university. He gives to good causes. He lives modestly. And he has great peace in life. This is his definition of wealth. So what about you? What does real wealth look like to you? And if you had the resources, what would be atop your list of how you want to live? And with that decided, you can now chart a realistic plan. And that plan may include how much passive income you need from investments at a certain age. For example, if you want to have $10,000 per month of income at age 60 and for the rest of your life, you will need $2.4 million in the bank, paying out 5% to make that happen. Once that's decided, the next principle of being wealthy is this. Start saving and investing now. Don't wait. Every month you delay beginning to invest, you make it harder to achieve. Giving your investments time to work is key. For example, if you invest $2,000 each month for 10 years and invest it earning 10% annually, at the end of 10 years, you'll have $410,000. If you do the same thing for 20 years, you'll have $1.5 million. So time works and compounds your returns in your favor. So if you're age 40 and you want $2.4 million in the bank at age 65, you need to save $1,800 a month for the next 25 years 
and invest that money appropriately. Here's the point. Get started now. And how do you get started? Well, there are a lot of options. You can set up a Charles Schwab or Fidelity account online or any one of the online investment accounts. You can contact an investment expert. There are a lot of ways to get started. And what do you invest in? Well, that's the next step. And that next step is remember two things as you begin to invest diversification and averaging. Now, when you invest, you have a host of choices. Do you buy bonds, stocks, real estate? And in doing so, do you buy mutual funds, ETFs, or other instruments? You don't need to know all those answers today, but the principle of diversification is this. You see, when a company or municipality needs money, the owners of the company can get a loan or they can sell a portion of the company. The loan is often called a bond, and the portion of the company they sell is often called a stock. And there are a variety of bonds, bonds that invest in municipalities, companies, projects, and other endeavors. And a bond is basically a loan you give to someone, and in return, they pay you a rate of interest or yield, and bond values can change based on market conditions. When you buy a stock, you buy a portion or share of a company. And how much that stock returns to you depends on a variety of factors, including company profits, market perception, perceived growth in the future, and other things. In addition to bonds and stocks, there are a host of other asset types. Real estate is an example. So when you invest, diversify. It means you invest in a variety of investment options. For example, you may decide to have 50% of your investments in stocks. 30% in bonds, and 20% in real estate. That would be your asset allocation. And diversification means you don't invest in only one type of stock or bond. For example, let's say you invested all your money with Bernie Madoff's company because the returns were so good. And when it was revealed that it was a Ponzi scheme, you would have lost everything. The same holds true for stocks and bonds. You may invest in Apple, the company, But what if Apple goes out of business or declines in value? And if you had all your money in that one stock, you're subject to the risk of that one company. Now compare this to holding 20 stocks. If one stock of those 20 declines in value, only one twentieth of your value is impacted. By buying 20 different stocks in various categories, you diversify your holdings. Additionally, Some asset classes like real estate rise and fall in different cycles than stocks. So diversifying to more than one asset class can provide some risk protection as well. And in my experience, the biggest hedge against risk is to diversify. Now, I mentioned averaging. Some people listen to the news and believe the stock market is going to crash. Then it doesn't. Sometimes they believe it's going to go up and it doesn't. It's tough to pick when stocks will move up or down or how the market will react. Therefore, when you have some cash, don't put all your money in at once. Average your investments into the market. This means put a certain amount each month into your investments. That way, over time, you will buy the highs and the lows, averaging the market. Now, let's talk about risk for a minute. I know people who want to avoid risk at all costs, so they invest in 100% safe investments. 
This year, if you invest in a bank-guaranteed CD right now, you can find them at around 2%. That means they'll give you a 2% return. The problem is that inflation right now is 7%. So if you have $100 and invest in a CD, at the end of the year, you'll have $102, right? But because things are 7% more expensive at the end of the year, that $102 won't buy you as much. You need to earn $107 just to be able to buy what you can today and keep up with inflation. Likewise, many people think I have $10,000 per month salary and that's all I need in retirement. And they fail to remember that in 20 years when they retire, gas won't be $4 a gallon. It will cost $10 a gallon. The same with food, utilities, cars, and everything else. So as you plan for your future, and invest, consider the effects of inflation. That means you may consider a higher return investment that has a little higher risk. And the problem with investments is they all have risk. And you have to be comfortable with some degree of risk. I've owned a stock that's failed. I've owned a rental home that's burned down. I've invested in private businesses that went out of business. Everything has some risk. So remember, Consider the impact of inflation, and to hedge against risk, diversify. The next principle, minimize taxes. Now, ordinary income is generally derived from a job, and it's taxed at ordinary income tax rates. When you buy an investment like a tax or a bond, you face two types of potential taxes, ordinary income or capital gains if it's long-term. So let's say you buy a stock, and you hold that stock for more than one year, and then you sell that stock. When you sell that stock, you pay capital gains tax on any gain you made on that stock. But to encourage people to invest and save for retirement, Congress has provided IRS-approved investment vehicles to encourage saving in which you don't pay those taxes or defer those taxes. These include a 401k, an IRA, a Roth IRA, and other tax-deferred investments. So if you're eligible for a 401k, here's how it works. A portion of each of your paychecks is invested in your 401k account. And usually these dollars are before taxes. So you're not taxed on those dollars before you invest in the 401k. This makes you more money. Why? Well, let's say you put $1,000 of your paycheck into your 401k. Those dollars are taken from your paycheck, again, before you pay income tax. And if you invested the same $1,000 in a regular investment, you would pay taxes on the $1,000 first, let's say $300 of income taxes, leaving you only $700 to invest. So with a 401k, you earn interest on the full $1,000 with an extra $300. And that adds up over time. Also, if your investments in your 401k accounts are sold or turn over to other investments, you don't pay capital gains until you retire or access the money. That's a huge benefit. Additionally, many employers match some of your 401k investment. This is why I tell my children your first investment dollars after you've set aside a few months of cash in the bank for emergencies should always be to maximize your 401k. Now, let me give you a simple example, a comparison. Let's say on one hand, you invest $1,000 into a 401k, 
And on the other hand, you invest $1,000 into a regular investment. Both hold the same stocks. In your 401k account, your employer matches 40% of your deposits. How much would each account be worth at the end of the 20 years with an annual return on your investments of 10%? The 401k account would be worth $1 million and your regular account would be worth $480,000. That is the power of a tax-deferred investment like a 401k. Now, when you're at retirement age and you take the dollars out of your 401k, you'll have to pay taxes. But for most people during retirement, their income tax rates are lower, so it saves them money. So, I tell my kids to max their 401k, IRA, Roth IRA every year if they can invest up to the allowed IRS limits. Now, this may not be right for everyone, but if you're saving for retirement, it has many benefits. Now, there are other tax-deferred investments. Go ahead and learn all you can about them. When we could, in our family, we invested in 529 education accounts for our children. 529 accounts allow gains from investments to be tax-deferred as well. And some states even offer tax deductions on these accounts. Now, these funds must be used for education-related expenses, but we started when our kids were younger putting $200 a month into their 529 account, and when it was time for college, they had what they needed. So, tax deferral is usually an investment priority. Now, on to our next principle. Get educated. Too many people lose money or don't get the most from their investments because they don't get educated. Now, we all make mistakes in investing because we don't know enough about what we're doing. But getting educated and gaining experience will help you make better decisions. When I teach investments in my college courses, I have the students set up a Charles Schwab account or a similar online investment account. And we put some dollars in and let the students begin to practice to invest. When you set up a Schwab or Fidelity or other online account, one of the things you also get is the education. You can go there and read about investing and the types of investments that are available. For example, one investment you can use to diversify immediately is a mutual fund. A mutual fund takes investors' money and buys dozens of stocks or bonds or other investments and puts them in a portfolio. And when you give a mutual fund your money, you buy a slice of all of those stocks or bonds at once thereby diversifying your investment without having to buy all of those stocks or bonds yourself. You see, when you get educated, you'll learn about fees. Some mutual funds have fees when you buy the fund, annual fees to manage the fund, or fees when you sell. You'll learn that no-load funds means there's no fees. Investment advisors and stockbrokers often take a fee. You'll get smart about how to assess those fees. Remember, if those advisors take 1% of your total portfolio every year as fees, they should be helping you earn at least 1% more per year than you could earn on your own. When you get educated, you'll learn that the older you get and the closer you come to needing your investment money to live on, the more you need to reduce the chances of volatility. For example, if you need your money in one to two years and the stock market crashes in the meantime, you could take a loss when you sell your stocks. Therefore, as you approach the time you need your money, you will likely change your investment options to those that have less volatility 
or have the risk of falling in price significantly. Now, you don't have to know everything to get started. Just get started. Read, experiment, get used to the language, learn the vocabulary, pay attention, and you'll soon become wiser, and that will help you make better decisions in the future. Now, if you already know all these things, teach them to your children. Set up an online investment account for them. Do this when they're young. Let them try and fail and learn. Next principle, ignore the noise. There is so much news and noise about what's happening to stocks and interest rates and investments. Once you have your plan, stick to your plan. Ignore the noise. I can't tell you the number of days when I read the news in the morning saying the stock market's going to drop and it goes up later that day and vice versa. Simply stick to your plan with a diversified portfolio. Average your buying and selling. Learn all you can and begin to make your money work for you. The goal of good investing is to get your money working for you. And this seems obvious, but getting the right mindset about investing is really important. Not very many people think like an investor. Now, they think they should save, and they hope that their savings will support their life during retirement. But an investor thinks differently. They don't think about how much they can earn as an employee. They think about how much they can earn as an owner. Now, you may own a business. And when you do, ask yourself, how can I invest my time or money to create ongoing cash flow back to me on an ongoing basis? And how do I get there as fast as possible? Investors think differently than savers. A lot of people, when they begin to think like an investor, they want to buy rental property, for example. And I think that's a good idea. Why? Because it teaches you great lessons about investing. When I got started with rental properties, I learned the hard way. For example, I eventually learned to try and buy your rental property so the monthly rent you collect is as close to 1% of the purchase price as possible. In today's market, I see lots of people buying rental homes for $700,000 and renting them for $3,000. That's less than one half of 1%, and it will likely not yield the profit model they need. I also learned to set aside a percentage of rent for upkeep and maintenance. Renters rarely leave the apartment or home in the same condition as they found it. Water heaters go out. Furnaces must be replaced. So I learned to budget 10 to 20% of rent, depending on the age of property, for replacing carpets, painting, maintenance, etc. I also learned to time your rental contracts to expire in months in which rental demand is high. For example, few people look for rentals in December, and if your contracts end in November or December, it's harder to find new renters. So I try to have contracts end in spring or summer. I also learned when you buy your property, don't think that it's good enough for a rental. Buy your property like you are an owner. For example, you may see a house that is poorly designed or has an awkward layout, and some people think, it's okay, it's just a rental. But you'll have to sell the property someday, and that layout will mean everything then. And the list goes on. Here's my point. Get started. You'll gain experience the more you invest. Last, there are more ways to be wealthy than being rich. My father and mother do not have a large portfolio of investments. They live in a modest home, but they're wealthy. They have a high moral character, friends, they give of what they have, and they have a spiritual foundation to their life. 
And when they pass on from this life, it won't matter what the balance was in their bank account, but they will have an account of sorts with a balance that is reflected. And that account is their life's work, their kindness to others, their giving, and their service to their family and community. That's how they will measure real wealth. Now, my parents taught me and my seven brothers and sisters a simple lesson. Give 10% of everything you earn. Tithe and make this a habit. When I was younger and my father was writing the check for his tithe or giving, he pulled me aside one day and told me why he believed in giving. He told me that nothing we have on this earth is really ours. It was made by and eventually will return to God. We are simply the stewards for a portion of what is His. And with that stewardship, we have a duty to care for the less fortunate. And you know, my father was never wealthy. He struggled at times to feed his eight kids. He didn't have money to help me with college, but he always gave 10% of his income every month. And here's what I've noticed. He's happy. Now, I've tried to follow his example. I've learned that giving sometimes is hard when you have other needs. As a poor college student, the 10% I gave could have bought clothes or food. But the habits my dad passed on to me and I started when I was younger have been a blessing to me and my family. The scripture says, Give, and it shall be given unto you. Good measure, pressed down and running over, shall men give unto you. I believe this is true. There's just something about people who give. They're just better people. And it's obvious. And I believe that others want to be around people who give. And if you always just give 10%, once you're in the habit, it's easy to sustain throughout your life. So as we end today, let me share this simple example. I had someone in a seminar define their game plan for wealth in life with these priorities. Priority one, be debt-free. Priority two, have investments or residual income that pays them $20,000 per month for life by the age of 60. Priority three, have an annual income so they have $30,000 a year of choose-to money, money they could choose to do anything with. Priority four, give at least 10% of their investment gains and income. Now, wouldn't that provide the resources for a happy life? Yes. So as we end today, remember, determine what real wealth means to you. Get your plan established and start investing today. Build a diversified portfolio and average into the market. Take advantage of tax-advantaged investments. Get educated and give 10% of what you earn. And you will create the resources to help you have a remarkable life and become truly wealthy. Most of all, thanks for being here today. And don't forget to share this podcast with a friend and join us next week for another podcast as we learn to open our eyes to who and what we can become. 